I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. Here is the word of God for us this morning in Ruth 2, starting with verse 1. We're going to read all of Ruth 2. Uh, as you know, as you will notice, we're going to begin to, to see, and I'm going to give you this so you can fix that afterwards. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, but as, as we're going to see, this, is a, this begins to introduce Boaz to the story. If those of you who have, have read the story of Ruth before are used to hearing about Ruth and Boaz. Um, today, though, um, there's plenty of stuff about Boaz. We have two more weeks to talk about Boaz. We, we're going to read about Boaz, but we're going to focus in on the relationship between Ruth and Naomi today. Now, Naomi had a kinsman on her husband's side, a prominent rich man of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean, uh, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose sight I might find favor. She said to her, go, my daughter. So she went, and she came and gleaned in the field behind the reapers. As it happened, she came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Just then Boaz came from Bethlehem. He said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to the servant who was in charge of the reapers, to whom does this young woman belong? The servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the Moabite who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the reapers. So she came and she has been on her feet from early this morning until now without resting even for a moment. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Keep your eyes on the field that is being reaped and follow behind them. I have ordered the young men not to bother you. If you get thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Then she, uh, and, um, I don't know. Um, then she said, uh, thank you. Then she um, fell prostrate with her face to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me when I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, 
and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and you came to a people that you did not know before. May the Lord reward you for your deeds and may you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, may I continue to find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, even though I am not one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some of this bread and dip your morsel in the sour wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he heaped up for her some parched grain. She ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she got up to glean, Boaz instructed the young men, let her glean even among the standing sheaves and do not reproach her. You must also pull out some handfuls for her from the bundles and leave them for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening and then she, when, then she beat out um, what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah um, of barley. She picked it up and came into the town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gleaned and she took out and gave her what was left over after she herself had been satisfied. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be he by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a relative of ours, one of our nearest kin. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay close by my servants until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is better, my daughter, that you go out with, this, um, with his young women, otherwise you might be bothered in another field. So she stayed close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. The lovely thing about reading a short book is we actually really get to study it, right? We get to read each part of it. Normally, we use what we call in, in the church a pericope. We pick out a part of a, of, a, of a chapter or something, but we actually get to read the whole chapter. And so y'all are becoming very intimately aware of, um, of, of every little nuance in this book. So I want you to imagine an area, a, a land... Um, that is only a mere 360 kilometers. It is one of the most densely populated areas of the world. It's surrounded by a tall barrier wall that shuts those who live outside the borders out from their world. Here you will find mass destruction of buildings and tens of thousands of people who are displaced. You will find one of the world's highest unemployment rates, and you will see that more than half the population is food insecure, and more than 80% of the population lies, relies every single day on humanitarian assistance. You'll discover that most hospitals have severe shortages on equipment and fuel, and, and thus they limit their care for their patients and potentially risk closure in this densely populated land, you will find that several of the schools that were damaged or destroyed when it was attacked in 2014 have not been rebuilt four years later, have never been restored. And you'll see that 94% of schools 
have to run on double shifts due to severe underfunding. Children and youth receive half the education they need since each school hosts two school periods in a day, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And college-age students in this region are unable to receive a college education because they are barred from leaving this land. This place is called the Gaza Strip, and it is known by many as a man-made living hell on earth. Now, I want you to imagine for a second that you and your family are trapped in that hell. Imagine having power outages for up to 16 hours a day, only having access to running water six hours once every two days, and not knowing where you're going to find clean water at all. Imagine your children and your grandchildren can't sleep at night because they have night terrors, and, and when they ask why they can't leave Gaza, even to visit relatives who live on the West Bank, the only answer you have is that the world believes that safety of some is more important than your safety. Imagine yourself there, and I promise you, you can't. I can't. I can't imagine myself there. I can imagine the circumstances as much as my privileged worldview allows. I can imagine the circumstances based on a few Nobel Prize winning photos we find spattered amongst the latest on Trump, right? But I can't, you can't, imagine yourself there. Earlier this week, while rifling through what I call my Pandora's box of chaos that is our Tupperware drawer, I came across an old lunch container. And it's the sort that has like three separate compartments divided by plastic containment walls. You know, like walls designed to keep one food product from touching another food product. The kind they market to kids terrified of food-to-food -food contamination, which on the list of American kids' all-time worst fears ranks like just below like clowns and Easter Bunny, right? As an adult, I I'm not... I'm not so picky about what's on my plate and if it's touching, but as a child, it was pretty anxiety-producing for me. And I couldn't tell you what I thought was going to happen if the food touched, if my applesauce grazed my sandwich, like maybe just soggy bread, some, some sort of biochemical reaction, gamma ray exposure. <laughs> I'm not sure, but, but I was terrified of this. You likely were, too, when you were a child. The most likely explanation for for why a container like this exists with walls is because humans, we, we like to keep things pretty simple. Science tells us that our brains naturally compartmentalize, categorize, synthesize the world around us. But of course things, sandwiches and applesauce and worldviews and peoples and places and expectations don't always remain within the nightly, nicely defined boundaries that we draw around them, right? Take, for instance, the story of Ruth. Despite its title, the book of Ruth is really a story about two women, not just one, Ruth and her mother Naomi, her mother-in-law Naomi. The story begins, after all, not with Ruth, but with the introduction of Naomi, her husband, <laughs> and their two sons. <laughs> Sorry, it keeps, yeah, pull them off. The story begins, after all, not with Ruth, but with the introduction of Naomi, her husband, and their two sons, refugees, who, who move from Bethlehem to Moab. Ruth enters the story as a secondary character, actually. One editor says that the, real, the point of Ruth in this story is just to redeem Naomi. 
That's the point. A fact we find reinforced over and over and over again because in 85 verses, the word redemption is used 25 times. Later on in the story, we find that Ruth's pledge of loyalty to Naomi extends to include her new husband, Boaz, but today we're going to hang on to this relationship a little bit longer. The book we call Ruth is not like your sandwich and your applesauce, easily compartmentalized, easily defined. It's actually this interwoven tapestry of relationships, not just one woman's story. Despite our desire to compartmentalize, this story just kind of spills over its walls. If we read closely, even the characters themselves transcend easy definition. After the deaths of her husband and sons, Naomi, whose name we said last week means pleasant, changes her name to Mara, meaning bitter. And we know that Naomi is not the first person of faith to actually name her depression, nor is she the last. One of my favorite authors and pastors, Nadia Boltz-Weber, writes often about her depression. A pastor with depression, how about that? Her depression, which she over time has come to name Francis. She says it's after Francis Bean, the daughter of Courtney Love and Kurt Cobain. Um, and so Nadia um, imagines her depression, um, Francis, as being like Courtney Love with a drink in her hand and smeared lipstick and wearing some kind of antique nighty, right? And while I don't, I don't struggle with chronic depression, there have been times in my life when I can look back now and say, goodness, if I had ever gone to, to seek help during this point in my life, they probably would have told me I was clinically depressed. I didn't know it then. And so I've decided next time I'm depressed, I'm naming my depression Melissa. <laughs> I decided recently to name my depression Melissa, mainly because about 50% of the people I meet think my name is Melissa already. Um, I don't know what, do you get Michelle all the time? All the freaking time. I don't know what it is about Melissa and Michelle, but, but I answer to both now. Um, and so... <laughs> In the mire of overwhelming grief, Naomi doesn't just name her depression, though. She renounces her name for a more fitting reflection of her internal landscape, Mara, bitter. I wonder, I wonder if Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain named their depression. I wonder. I wonder if in their most recent heartbreak, recent emptiness, if they too, like Naomi, began to renounce their names for a more fitting reflection of their internal landscape. Interestingly for us, despite Naomi changing her own name, the text continues to refer to her for us, the reader, as Naomi, as a subtle nod to the complexity of identity and emotion and depression in the midst of the emptiness and hellishness of life. She's a wife, she's a mother, she's a mourner, she's a friend, a hidden universe of contradictions and fears and hopes and desires. And she's Naomi, and she's also Mara. She's one thing, and then she's all these things at once. It's just spilling over the walls of who we think she might be. As I scrolled through article after article and opinion after opinion and post after post in the wake of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain's deaths this week, what was obvious, everyone... Everyone from every perspective, Tupperwared, 
for the lack of a better word, their conjecture of what the root of suicide is and how to solve its problem, of who Kate and Anthony were at heart and how to recover it or celebrate it or how to use their lives as a witness of what not to do or a witness of who to be. And the reality, though, is that they were both Naomi and they were Mara. We can't ignore either. We can't compartmentalize and celebrate and mourn without acknowledging their Naomi and their Mara, the places of light within them and the places of darkness within them. One of my favorite theologians, Richard Rohr, talks about this and calls it dualistic thinking. And he says it is at the heart of every problem we have. I want you to hear about what this means. Clay, and I'll turn the light off. Well, I don't know why God took this risk, but I've checked it out now with brain surgeons, even, people who understand this, this mechanism up here. And the brain is a binary system. It does know by comparison and competition with something else. And if you're fathers, you see this in your little children. They know tall in relationship to short. They know black in relationship to white. They know gay in relationship to straight. But, well, kids don't think that way yet. But, you know, it's, that's the way the mind forms. And most people, I'm sad to say, don't go much beyond that. <laughs> now, that's called thinking like a child, or I would call it dualistic thinking. Alcoholics Anonymous calls it all or nothing thinking, black and white thinking. I always say, I'd be an alcoholic too, because you're not very happy. You can't be happy with a dualistic mind. You just, you're disappointed in everything, because what you're doing with a dualistic mind, you ask for an explanation. Every event, every person, every situation that comes toward you, you, you don't realize it, but you split it. That part of it that you already like, agree with, understand and that part that doesn't threaten you and that is not mysterious to you you call that true or good that's the way the mind works and I work that way too if I don't watch it if she's good looking you give her attention do you understand and the part that isn't good looking well doesn't deserve my attention that's the way the ego operates. It only takes in that which it can control and that which is to its personal advantage. Now what you've done in splitting every moment, and I mean every moment, you eliminate half of everything. The dark side, the broken side, the problematic side, the mysterious side. Now if God is by definition mystery, do you see? why you stay in the first level of religion forever. Forever! You can study your Bible all your life and you will interpret that Bible at the first level. I mean, that's why there's racists who are Baptists. You know, it just blows your mind. How can a Baptist who loves the scriptures be a racist? It seems like it's a contradiction in terms, but we know it isn't. <laughs> because you can understand even the Word of God at a childish, self-serving level. That's called dualistic thinking. Now, when I tried to reintroduce that word to the Western church, I thought I was going to get a lot of pushback because it isn't a word that Western Christianity used very much. We spoke in the mystical tradition of unitive consciousness, but we didn't speak of non-dual. 
I said, until we start describing it precisely, it's not, it's a refusal to split. People don't get it. And they don't recognize how they are splitting all the time and eliminating everything that's threatening, everything that's mysterious, everything that's not me. So the only people that get in are white American Catholics, if you're my group, you know. <laughs> white American middle class Catholics, preferably. Well, this leaves you in a very small pond. Certainly not what Jesus called the kingdom of God. This is what we're dealing with. In fact, with. we gotta do our teaching real fast. The dualistic mind is about to destroy our politics. Oh, it has destroyed it already. And is destroying most of our churches. Uh, See, if you've defined religion as being in control and being right and being on top and looking good and making money while doing it, uh, you're not going to let anybody kick out the chair from underneath you. you. You're used to always looking good, moral high ground. You see, religion is very dangerous because religion can give you moral high ground without achieving any moral high ground, just in your own mind because you attach the word Catholic or Methodist or Anglican to your name and you say you read the Bible and you say to, you go to a church service, uh, this gives you a very attractive self-image. But your self-image is not you. It's just your self-image. And your thinking doesn't make it so. Your false self is who you think you are. And your thinking doesn't make it so. Hawker Parker Palmer writes at length about the struggle to integrate those aspects of our nature that feel at odds with one another. One story he, he quite often is known for telling um, is when in the midst of a serious bout of depression, a spiritual guide offered him these words. Parker, you, you seem to keep imagining your depression as the hand of an enemy trying to crush you why don't you try imagining it as the hand of a friend trying to press you down to the ground on which it is safe to stand? This bit of wisdom, he says, helped him realize that while he could not dismiss his depression, he could attempt to befriend it. He could take the fractured pieces of his soul and hold them carefully, lovingly together. I hear the same sentiment echoed in the prayers of the German poet Reich, um, who says... I've been scattered in pieces, torn by conflict, mocked by laughter, washed down in drink. It's here in all the pieces of my shame that now I find myself again. I yearn to belong to something, to be contained in an all-embracing mind that sees me as a single thing. And I yearn to be held in the great hands of your heart. Naomi in this story is an integrated being. Naomi and Mara. Like us, her story is shaped by all the stories that intersect with it here. Reading this book again, it seems pretty clear to me that Ruth and Naomi, their destinies are bound together. We, we can't fully understand one without considering the other. The importance of this relationship takes on even greater significance when we read the Gospel of Matthew later, which says, which recognizes Ruth and Boaz and their son Obed in the genealogy of Jesus. In a sense, we can see the book of Ruth and the rest of the Bible as 66 distinct books, or we can see them as we do our own family histories or 
those places of light and darkness in ourselves as a series of layered upon layered upon layered, distinct and yet inextricable anything but separate and compartmentalized as the media coverage of refugees fleeing Syria grows and I try to imagine myself there, I cannot. Time and time again, I am tempted to see myself as a third-party observer, someone neither connected to the situation nor to the people climbing over fences and sleeping outside train stations. But in 2018, I simply cannot be a third-party observer. I can't be. Our globalized world is not my trisectioned Tupperware container, carefully guarding our lives from touching one another's. We may not recognize the connections, but, but they are there. And they are affected by, by what we buy and how we vote and the wars we wage and the silence we hold in the face of injustice. As the prayer of confession says, that we say together most weeks, forgive us, Lord, for what we have done and what we have failed to do. I think our response to this crisis and all crises and the one, ones that are sure to follow must begin with, with befriending those disparate parts of our souls, the light and the dark, the Naomi's and the Mara's within all of us, asking the darkness what it can tell us about the light within us and the light in the world in places we don't actually think there's light. And like Naomi, it's possible. It's possible that our redemption lies somewhere outside ourselves. Our our compartmentalization, our separation, our isolation, our suburban desire to return every night to our home with our family, with our people, with our pets, eating our food we paid for with our money, our compartmentalization of darkness and light, of goodness and evil, of suffering and abundance is in fact our privilege. I tell you this because last Sunday at Sunday suppers, while we were all crowded under a tent, about a 10 by 10 tent, with about eight volunteers and 15 people living in and among uh, Franklin Square coming to receive food and eat with us. One guy, as we are talking about the rain, Marcus chimes in and says, it's just a little rain. You know, goodness is good when, when you make it good. Life is good when you make it good. So bizarre, right? Because you think these people are in the rain every single time it rains, and yet there's no compartmentalization. There's no light and dark. The rain is the rain, and yet there's goodness in it. Life is only good when you make it good, but when we compartmentalize our Naomi's and our Mara's, when we begin to, to draw lines between depression and somebody who has it all together, lines between poverty and somebody who has it all together, we miss it. We miss it, and that is our privilege. Last week, we talked about how our privilege is the fear of failure. We get that privilege as people who get to keep failure at a distance. This week, our privilege is that we get to separate things. We get to go into our garages. We get to spend our money. We get to love our families. We get to be with our friends. And yet, we're all so intimately connected. And so, what is the one way? One way? I don't know how to, I don't know how to, to solve the injustice in the world, believe me. I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not, this is not a, a beauty pageant where I tell you what's going to bring us world peace. But what I know is that when people together gather in a place like this and vow to worship a Palestinian refugee, <laughs> there is something that unites us worldwide with refugees. And so that's what we're going to do later on today. 
And if places in your life right now, I say, where you're drawing lines, this is good and this is bad, this is what success looks like and this is what failure looks like, I invite you into those spaces of Naomi's and Mara's together in one person. Find out how your darkness can begin to inform your light. Would you pray with me as the band comes forward? I'm going to pray and then we will um, listen to our testimony. God, we, um, we are so grateful for all that we have. We're grateful for people who can get out of bed in the morning as people who aren't weighed down by depression, weighed down with a desire to exit it all. And yet we know that each of us has our own dark places, our, our dark passengers, our, the thing within us that, that, that tells us we're not good enough, the thing that forces us to, to, to work for our own safety at the expense of other people's safety. And so we repent of that today, and we ask that as worshipers of a Palestinian refugee, that we, that we would be unified into a mission that isn't about helping people find their success or setting ourselves as people who serve and others as people who receive our service, but as people, worshipers, who long to be interconnected with the world around us, who long to, to see ourselves as our brother's keepers, even when we don't know what that means and what we can do and how to make a difference. We know that this starts here. That's all we know. So we join in that prayer that that, <laughs> that Palestinian refugee taught us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Would you sing with me um, our song for the, for the series, God of Justice? to invite forward Sarah Williamson. Um, she has a story that I think you all would like to hear a little bit about um, today as we get, for, um, get ready to, to, to interact with our hands related to justice and refugees. Um, and there's a mic there for you. Awesome. Do you mind if I stand? Sure. That's totally it's fine. okay. If I no sit worries. down, I won't be able to see all no. your great faces. So... Thank you, Michelle, for inviting me to speak with you today about refugees. I'm going to share a little bit about my personal testimony and how that ties into God's calling on my life to do humanitarian work. And as you see this picture in the back, that's a picture of my parents. It's actually their missionary picture when they were setting out as young people to serve God in Western Kenya. 
And this is the type of picture that you would have on your fridge when you remember to pray for the missionaries in your church. Um, my father met my mother in Maine. He was a veteran of the Vietnam War and wanted to find a peaceful place to live. And my mom was a nurse, and she had always wanted to be a missionary in Africa. They got connected to a church that was called The Bible Speaks. If you can imagine the anti-war hippie movement meeting the Jesus movement of the 70s, this was the type of church that my parents got involved in when they got married. So that's why I was born in a small village in western Kenya called Mumias. It's in the Kakamega district of Kenya, and it's actually the neighboring village to where Barack Obama's father grew up. But the area where I was born was not famous until then. And now <laughs> it's a site of pilgrimage the whole world over. Um, but unfortunately, if I go to Kenya now and I tell people that I was born in Mumias Village, they automatically guess my age. Because it was a bad drought year, the year that I was born. And if I talk about the drought, they automatically know what year it was. And Unfortunately, the same year that the drought came, the Bible Speaks decided to stop sending money to my parents. And they didn't know how to feed us as a family. And so they left Kenya, and they divorced shortly thereafter. So even though I have a missionary kid story, I grew up with a single mom and my brother in a small town in Maine, uh, which is not quite as diverse as the village. Um, and so we didn't go to church as a family growing up, um, even though we had this missionary story. Uh, we were too embarrassed to go to church because we're a divorced missionary family. But we read little arch books, which were like golden children's stories, and we served communion to each other at home every Sunday. And when my brother and I were in middle school, my mom felt that we needed to know more about the Bible so she forced us to go to Bible camp. And we thought it was terrible and embarrassing and we didn't want to go. But we met wonderful lifelong friends there. And um, my brother and I both accepted Christ as our savior while we were there at the camp. I wrote this down in case I would get nervous. <laughs> so after I became a Christian, I really wanted to go back to the village in Kenya and do something for the area where I was born. So I was 15 years old and I found a a church that was sponsoring a mission trip to that same area. And they were also on a mission to build a school in that area. And so every day when I arrived in, in Kenya as a 15-year-old kid, I would go out to the land and dig the foundation and the trenches for the school and build concrete blocks. But while we were laying the foundation, refugees from Somalia came and squatted on the land where we were trying to build, and it became impossible, even during a summer mission trip, to finish the work because there were so many refugees uh, on the land. And so the police became involved, and they got huge dump trucks, massive dump trucks, and they started uh, beating the Somali women and children and forcing them onto the dump trucks and then taking them back up to the border of Somalia. And as a young person, this had an indelible impression on me. And I wanted to learn how to protect those people from such a terrible experience. I mean, how is it possible that you can get beaten and forced into a dump truck and then literally dumped at the border just because 
you're fleeing for your life. So even though I was very young, on my, on my way home back to Maine, I had a layover by myself at JFK Airport in New York, and I was moved significantly and really heard a call on my life to work with refugees and to go to many people and many places. So in the last 25 years since that story, I have worked with the United Nations and the Red Cross and worked all over the world helping displaced people including in, in the US after major disasters. And each disaster challenges me and changes me as a person. There's too many to talk about without going on way too long. Um, but in 2010, after the earthquake in Haiti, I decided to form a group called Protect the People, a, a group of relief experts that go out and troubleshoot for organizations all over the world. And I'm the founder and director of that organization. So for me, protecting people in danger is not just a mission statement. It's really the call that God has placed upon my life. And I find this evidenced by the fact that I often wake up in the middle of the night and I'm dreaming about someone I don't know or a family or a group of people in a difficult situation or a country in crisis. And I don't know who they are, but they're as real as day to me and... I feel that it's important to intervene for them, even though I'm not there. And if, if my mom were here with us, she would tell you, you know, I, things I would be embarrassed to say that, that I've lost my life, almost lost my life numerous times trying to pursue this mission. I've been held hostage and bitten by fatal poisonous spiders and literally run down in the street and had to evacuate uh, several countries, as uh, was shared earlier. And it's wonderful to see that God rescues us. You know, God has a heart of being with people who are on a journey, especially people who the journey is really too much for them, and they really just want to find a place to settle. And that's the situation that refugees find us in. And there are so many refugees in the world today. There are 20 million uh, refugees worldwide, and um, over a quarter of those are Syrian uh, refugees, and there are over 60 million people who are displaced from their homes by, by conflict, and even now we have a, a situation at the, at the border of the U.S. where children are taken from their parents. So these can be kind of disheartening and somewhat hope, hopeless situations, but I believe that even if we're not there with them, that God hears our prayers to intervene for them, and he rescues us, and he rescues them in their time of need. To our contempt, all who feel unworthy, all who heard but nothing left, knowing you are holy, and all will sing out
Table.